that was a great, great video from the Clark family. I really appreciate them telling their story. Right now, I want you to open your Bible to Luke chapter 10. The reason we're sharing that story with you, the reason I carried a box in here today, is because we're starting a new series. This series is called Unpacking Care. So literally, today I have my box. I'm going to take this lid off, and I'm going to pull a few items out of here to help us as we think about this idea of how we unpack care in our lives, how we care for others. Pastor Carlos had this on his heart to share with our church, and you're going to hear more from him next week about the why behind this series. But just know that when you think about the way our church acts and reacts to each other, we want it to be characterized by love and care for each other. So that when people walk away from our church, they're saying, I've never been more cared for than when I was in that place. So that's our hope, that's our goal behind this, for us to pick up what it means to care for others, just like the early church in Acts. Man, if you look back at the early church in Acts, I think we're gonna cover that passage in this series. You're gonna see a church that was so consumed with the gospel that it flooded into every part of their life. And in doing so, you looked around and no one had any needs. Every need was being met. That's where we're headed over the next four weeks in this series, Unpacking Care. Now, to get started this morning, I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Like I said, we're going to be in a story there in that chapter. But first, let me get your mind thinking about a certain kind of scene. And I'll tell it through one of the stories of my life. This was probably, I think, maybe when I was in college a while ago now. I was on a family trip. It was my parents. It was my brother, my sister. We were with another family. And this was some good friends of ours. And we went on a trip to Puerto Rico. Beautiful island. Amazing time. And there was one particular instance, though, of all the fun we had and like snorkeling we did, all that kind of stuff you do on the island, all the amazing things we did there. There was one particular time, though, that kind of stood out to me that I, I still just vividly remember to this day. And that was one of the first nights we were there. We were in the capital city of San Juan, and we, me, my younger brother, and our friend went on a little walk. We said, let's go out tonight. Let's go uh, maybe find something to eat or go find something to do. And we started walking around, having no idea where we were actually headed. But we had a great time. We're walking around. We're joking around. We hadn't been able to hang out in a long time. We're, we're talking. We're wandering through the streets. And you know how sometimes, you know, it starts to get dark outside. And like before you realize it, it's really dark. Well, that's what happened to us. It was like the sun set so fast that night that we looked around and we said, we should probably head back to the hotel. In fact, we actually have no idea where we're at in this moment. I'm looking around. I said, let's, let's, let's turn back around. And we started to pay more attention to the surroundings in which we were in at that moment. 
And I, I can't say that I would describe it as a really like place you want to find yourselves when the sun goes down, okay? And I'm looking at my brother, I'm looking at my friend, and they look terrified as we start to realize, again, more about the surroundings in which we're now in. Now, there's no phone that we have to like give us pull up ways and get us back to the hotel or Google Maps. There's no Uber to call. My friend who's with us, he's Puerto Rican, but he hadn't been on the island in years. My brother's no help. <laughs> I, know you're, I know you're watching right now. And, and all of us decide like, okay, what are we going to do now? And we're looking at each other's eyes and, and me taking the lead. I said, let's just go. We got this. And we start meandering through the streets and things just seem to go from like bad to worse. We're looking around and I'm like, whoa, we have got to find our hotel fast. Eventually, to make a long story short, we make it back. I think we took a lot of wrong turns, but when the hotel came, like we're seeing it in the distance, it's coming up on the horizon, we're walking, oh, there it is. My brother and his friend just start like, oh, they can't believe it. Like we, we, we actually made it back, we're all alive, and they start freaking out. They're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Like you weren't even scared at all. Well, inside my heart the whole time, I was terrified, but I, I never let them know. I was like, no, yeah, no, no, I, I wasn't scared at all. Why are you guys so scared? I don't understand. I had this. And that's what it was like on, on that trip. That was the scene that I remember. And maybe you've had that kind of experience where you've been somewhere, maybe high crime, and you've looked around and you've said, I don't know if this is the best place to be right now. This is the scene in which we would describe the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a desolate, barren road, and it made for lots of places for which robbers could hide. And it's the scene in which Jesus tells the story of what we know as the Good Samaritan. But there's one more scene I want you to have in your mind for this story, and that's what's actually happening as Jesus is telling the story. Jesus is this kind of upstart, religious leader, this Jewish rabbi who has become a star among the people. And when you look at the establishment of the Jewish faith, those, those people who would be leading at the temple and in daily life, they don't like him. And they see him as a threat, and they've now come full speed trying to find a place in which they can trip him up. And that's where we pick up the story in Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbors as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So here's this lawyer who comes to Jesus and he's putting him to the test. And Jesus immediately, man, he's always got the right answer. He always 
does this amazing thing where he kind of just switches it around on him. And he says, well, what do you read in the law? And Jesus affirms with him that the law can be summed up with these two basic premises, love God and love people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But notice what happens in verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now I want you to file that away. This this very critical detail that Luke adds into the story. The intention of his heart was to justify himself. And he asked that question, who's my neighbor? And now Jesus turns to share the story. Okay, so here we are. We're finding ourselves in the scene that I described earlier. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So there he is on this very dangerous road. Robbers have found him. He's sitting on the side of the road. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So he clearly sees him, but he chooses to go the other way. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Same thing. And it's probably there in that moment as Jesus is telling the story that the lawyer and his friends that are coming to Jesus with this test, that they think, oh, we know where he's going. Right? You know, like, Jesus, okay, you're kind of against the establishment. You're wanting to bring us all down. And, and so he, he's used the example of the priest and the Levite. And now they're probably thinking Jesus is going to use the example of a simple Jewish man. You know, a man of the people. But Jesus doesn't do that. In verse 33 it says, But a Samaritan came to the place and saw him. So someone totally outside their circle. And we're going to talk about, more about that in a second saw the man, this Jewish man who's on the side of the road. He came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Verse 34, he went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he sat him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend... I will repay you when I come back. So that's the story. And as I told you, in this series, we want to look at a story like that, a story that's been held up for a long, long time as a way to love our neighbor, a way to care for our neighbor. I want to unpack that for us. And I'm going to do that in a series of six statements. And the first statement I have has to do with this picture I have of my family. Here's the idea. True gospel love and care does even when others don't. And you're like, well, what does that have to do with your family? Well, I notice here's, here's my five crazy kids in this picture. And I've noticed something that 
is not getting any better. Our oldest is 10, our youngest is three, almost four, and we're right in the middle of, you know, elementary, and we're headed into middle school. And I've noticed something that's only getting worse, and that is this idea of comparison. My kids will say, well, Jesse doesn't have to. Well, Caroline, she got to. And every way in which we direct them, they're constantly comparing it to what so, you know, what this sibling got to do or didn't get to do. Now we know that this doesn't go away for us adults either, right? In fact, I would say that the majority of the time we base our morality on what the person to our right and our left is doing. You with me? Well, there, you know, I, I've been a part of those of church services every week, and I know there's people who've missed a lot of weeks lately. Well, I, I went and I, I served in this ministry and this ministry and this ministry, and, you know, others, you're lucky to find them serving only at VBS or something. And we base how well we're doing. Well, I, I only steal sometimes, but, you know, this person over here, they, you could see where they're slipping over there, and I, I don't, I'm nothing like them. But true love and care for our neighbor, gospel care, it does even when others don't. Of course, in this story, we have the priest and the Levite who walk by and pass by on the other side. They don't want to become ceremonially unclean. And when they go to the other side, it gives that Samaritan man every right to pass by just like they did. But he doesn't. Because Jesus is saying, if you want to love others, you have to do what others won't do. Second idea is this, that we care for people, even people we don't care for. Now, to give you a little more context for this story, I, I mentioned as I was reading it that the lawyer and others around him are probably expecting Jesus to say, okay, there's a Jewish man who now comes on the scene. He's a simple man. He's just a man of the people, and he's the one who comes to save the day. But Jesus uses the example of a Samaritan. Samaritans were hated. Maybe you could even describe them as these kinds of people. I can't even believe I'm using this right now in our church and Okay, you know I'm kidding. I mean, kind of, a little. But the fact is, we have enemies, especially those people who do that. But you could also frame it like politically. You could localize it in your circles, and you could probably think of people who you don't get along with. For the Samaritans and the Jewish people, there was this great big divide, okay? One scholar around the first century writes, I'm sorry, he's not a scholar, he's just a writer from that time, who says this, there's two nations my soul detests, and he describes people of Seir and the Philistines, two of Israel's greatest enemies. 
But then he says, and there's a third who's not even a people, referring to the Samaritans. The Samaritans were desecrators of the temple. They had uh, trampled down the temple at one point. They, they had desecrated it. They had decided that the Jerusalem temple, which was the central place, right, for the Jewish people, they had said, that's not the true temple. And they had established their own in, on Mount Gerizim. And so the Jews looked at the Samaritans as half-breeds. They hated them. And when Jesus brings up this idea that it was a Samaritan who's caring for this Jewish man, it would have sent shockwaves as they heard this story. Because loving our neighbor, caring for our neighbor, means caring for people, even those we don't care for. And number three, it stops. Gospel care, true care and love for our neighbor, stops even when we don't have time. Listen, I'm one of those people that I write down in my planner every day. Here's what today's gonna be, I have this appointment. All right, let me pop that in my calendar. I keep a calendar on my phone, mark that in there, put that on my planner. Now, if you're like me, you know how hard it is to not follow what's written in this. Now, some of you are like, what are you talking about? I, I got no problem with that. But even you, You'd probably say, I've got a schedule to keep today. I know I've got, got a lot to do. We might look at this story and say, come on. It's the first century. What do those guys really have to do? You know, much simpler time. But the truth is you can't make that argument. I'm sure that Samaritan had somewhere to go, people to be with. They had the same amount of time as we have. I mean, I was thinking about this. I was reading uh, in a book, and it, it, was, it was mentioning the dynamic of if you would take the technology that we have today and you would have brought it back, just, just take the technology we have today, bring it back 30 years, 30 years ago, in my lifetime, and, and say to us 30 years ago, look, you have all these tools at your hands. I mean, you can talk to anyone at any time, face-to-face, -face, across the globe. It's insane, the technology we have, how much more efficient we have become. And we would take it back to them, we'd say, okay, look, we have all these tools, and they would probably look at us and say, well, what's your work week like? I mean, are you working like maybe 10 hours, 20 hours a week? I mean, surely you've cut back like how much time you're working, right? Nope. Still putting in the same time and work every week. If you look at the life of Jesus, you'll notice it always seems like he has all the time in the world. I mean, he's stopping for people that his entourage would say, like, come on, Jesus, let's go. We've got places to be. Jesus had three years of ministry, and he knew that. He had three years to make a mark on the world that would be forevermore with us. Three years. And yet, in every instance, it seems like he's got all the time that he could possibly need. And so it takes margin. We have to have in our life some margin built in if we're going to be the kind of people who care for each other the way that Jesus is describing here.
We can't have our schedule so full that we can't stop for a minute to help someone who calls us. So gospel care stops even when we don't have time. It also acts even when we don't have obligation. I want you to notice in this story that for this Samaritan man, he has no obligation, right? No one's watching him. Is he going to do the right thing? This isn't a family. This isn't part of his family. This isn't a friend. This isn't even his own people. There's literally no obligation. I mean, it's one thing for us to act when we have obligation, right? I have my tax form. It's getting right here into the middle of tax season. And I know if I don't complete this and send it in, that someone's going to come after me. Someone, I don't know, wearing some black suit is going to track me down and find me. I don't know how that works. I've always paid my taxes, okay? But at some point, someone's going to come, track me down and say, look, sir, you've got to pay your taxes. And so at that point, I know I have to act because I have an obligation as a citizen of the United States. But for this man, he literally has no obligation. And it pushes us that much further down the road of what care should look like for us. That we must act even when we don't have obligation. Act to the point in which this man does, where he takes out his oil and his wine, he binds up his wounds. I mean, he's getting his hands dirty here. He puts him on his animal, his donkey or his horse, and he walks the rest of the way. It's that kind of action. It acts when we don't have obligation. It pays even when we don't owe. It pays even when we don't owe. I have my debit card. And I was thinking about just how costly this kind of care was for the Good Samaritan. It was costly in the time that he lost. It was costly in the risk he took. It was costly in the energy he extended to bind up his wounds. It was costly in the resources he uses. It was costly in the money he pays to the innkeeper. He gives him enough money that after I did a little research, the two denarii would probably pay for a month or two of lodging, right? Would you be ready to do that? If you knew somebody who needed a place to stay for a month or two, that you could have the money available, you could have the margin in your bank account to say, okay, I'll take care of that need. And then he goes a step further. And he says, whatever more you spend, I will repay So not only does this care pay when we don't owe, but it sees through until the end, even when we don't see an end. It reminds me of a plant. I don't know how well you can see this, but this plant is struggling. It's, I'm a little notorious for not doing so well with taking care of plants. This is wilted. It has not been watered. It has not been cared for. And with plants, I don't know, there's no end. You just, every day, you got to water, you got to make sure it gets the sun. It's pretty easy, but I still, I'm terrible at it. And that's what you see in the example of this Samaritan, that it's not about just caring for someone in this small little moment. You know, hey, I, I visited him once in the hospital. I made one phone call. 
it's the kind of care that says, I'm with you until the end, which I don't know when the end's coming. It sees through until the end, until even when you can't see the end. Now, I have just a couple more quick points of application for our church right now in this moment that I feel like I, I have to say. The first one is this. It's hard to make your needs known. But some of you need to do that. Some of you need to say, look, if you peel back the layers of my life right now, I've got some real needs that if I were to let the church know, right now there would be people who would want to meet those needs. So help us with that. If you have needs, let's figure it out. Let's be the kind of church that, that meets needs. Let's be the kind of church that reveals our needs. And number two, we're saying that we want care to be so embedded in us as a people that it just becomes instinctive in the way we move towards others and the way that we care for others. And that means it's not going to be some big formal program. I mean, we may need to put some formal things in place to say, okay, this is what care is going to look like for our church. We're going to do this and this and this. We already do several of those things. You'll hear about those. But so much of it has to be just grassroots. It has to be each of us saying, okay, like I see that need. I'm going to move towards it. I have a need. I'm going to make it known. And us just constantly being people who care in a way that's described in this story. But you can only do that. You can only do that. This can only be possible but for one thing. Let's finish the story. In verse 36, after Jesus had finished telling the story of the Samaritan, he turns to them and he says, which of these do you think proved, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Although this lawyer hated to admit it, in fact, he doesn't even say Samaritan, he just says the one. <laughs> he doesn't want to admit to Jesus that the Samaritan was the one who truly was the neighbor, but he said it, was, it had to be him. He was the one who acted as a neighbor. And in doing so, our neighbor and our obligation to love them, that definition gets completely redefined. Right? Our neighbor becomes anyone, even our enemy. And this is amazing when you think about what's described in this story and the way in which we're told to love. This kind of care that does even when others don't, who cares for people that we don't even care for. It stops even when we don't have time. It acts even when we don't have obligation. It pays even when we don't owe. It sees through until the end, even when we don't see the end. I mean, imagine what it would be like to be a part of that. But then you get to the next verse where Jesus says, in verse 37, and Jesus said, you go and do 
likewise. You have to put in context this story, the whole story. And I told you earlier to file away verse 29 where the man says, or he doesn't say, Luke points this out, that he was desiring to justify himself. So look, put all this together. Jesus is saying, okay, here's what it takes to have eternal life. You gotta love God, you gotta love people. And the lawyer's saying, okay, I can do that. Look, I want everyone to know here that I am okay with God because I love God and I love my neighbor. And he says, okay, Jesus, who's my neighbor? And he's expecting Jesus maybe to come up with a definition that, that would fit his world. And he would say, look, I've checked it off my list. I've done it. But instead, Jesus extends the definition of what a neighbor is. And he says, this is what it takes to be right with God. To love our neighbor in a way described in this story that's just outrageous. Even our enemy. This is impossible until you realize one thing. You see, we've held this story up for our kids. We've shared this and passed this story on over and over. And we've said, look, be like the Good Samaritan. And we're supposed to be like the Good Samaritan. But first, you have to get this thing right. In this story, we're not the Good Samaritan. We're the man who's beat up on the side of the road. You know who the Good Samaritan is, right? That's Jesus. Because when we see what Jesus has done for us, that's just what the Good Samaritan did. It was Jesus who does what no one else could do. It was Jesus who cares for those who did not care for him. It was Jesus who stopped even though he didn't have time. It was Jesus who acted even though he didn't have obligation. It was Jesus who paid even though he did not owe. And it was Jesus who sees us through until the end. You see, our mind has to get wrapped around the fact that Jesus is the Good Samaritan. Our hearts have to wrap our our spirit around that, that Jesus has a love for us that's so great that he went to the cross on our behalf to take our sins on himself. And when you grasp that and receive that, then you can go and do likewise. So may we be people who would be described in this same way, who would be described as people of Jesus, who reflect his character, who stop even though we don't have time, who pay even though we don't owe, who act even though we don't have obligation who see through until the end, who act even though, uh, even though no one else does. May we be those kind of people. May that characterize us because it characterized Jesus. This is the most important part that, that, that like when we talk about care the rest of this series, we have to start here. That we cannot love others until we receive the love of the Father. 
And so if you've never received the love of Jesus in your life, if you've never entered into a relationship with him, to know him, to have your sins forgiven by him, then I invite you to do that. You can call on Jesus. You can say, Jesus, I need you. I want you to forgive me. I know that my sin separates me from you, and I need your forgiveness and love in my life. I know there's times where I want to justify myself just like the man in the story. I know there's times where I want to make myself right, and I can't do it. I'm at the end of myself. If you find yourself, you know, echoing the things I'm saying right now, you call out to Jesus, and the Bible says you will be saved. You'll be rescued from your sins and given new life. And the Holy Spirit will come into your life and will empower you to go and do likewise. Lord, we pray that this story would lead us to your love. And as your love fills us, it would be given out to others just as it was given to us. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your powerful name. Amen.